Thank you guys for coming. <laughs> so good to see so many of these, many of you I haven't seen in many years. This obviously is our service commemorating the 30th anniversary of the start of our church. We are normally, we're in the process of going through the Psalm 119. So we're going to take a break from that. And we're going to look specifically at a passage in Hebrews chapter 12, something we've looked at in the past and some years past. But I feel like there are some truths in these verses that could really encourage us as a local church and really any whatever church you're a part of, but also promises that help us to think about what the future might hold. Just to mention a couple things, our first public service was held on Palm Sunday, April 4th, 1993. And I know we have some people here who were there at that first service. Um, there was quite a bit that happened with me personally leading up to that service. For me, it began with a class that I attended at Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas. I took a class called on church planting. And really, as I took that class, the Lord really just laid it on my heart that that's something that I should be doing is to actually plant a church. Well, after I graduated in God's good providence, the Lord led me to serve at First Baptist Church of Fairborn um, in their youth and singles ministry, which was in 1990. The last year, the Reds won the World Series. Um, I pursued, leading up to that, several other pastoring and church-starting opportunities, and they all fell through. Uh, one thing that I was not looking for was another youth ministry position. I had done that for about 10 years. And uh, somebody said at one time, you've only got so many lock-ins in you. <laughs> and so I felt like I had done my share. But that wasn't true. <laughs> it just so happened that a friend of mine from a past church in Florida was a major in the Air Force and stationed at Wright Pat. And the church he attended was looking for a youth and singles minister. And my friend heard from another mutual friend that after, that after graduating from seminary, all of my opportunities had kind of fallen apart. So my friend in Fairborn, who is Major Mike O'Neill, sent me a letter asking if it would be okay with him, if, uh, with me, if, I, if he would uh, give my name to the search committee. I told him no, I wasn't interested. <laughs> Interesting enough, about a year ago, Mike found that letter, took a picture of it, and sent it to me on Facebook where I had told him no. <laughs> but after telling him no, I thought better of that. And I thought, who was I, who was I to tell God that I was only willing to serve in certain ways. And so I got back in touch with Mike and said, yes, you can give him my name. And so First Baptist flew Robin and I out to Fairborn and ultimately agreed to take that position. However, I also told Pastor Don McMurray that I was really not planning to do youth ministry long term, that I really felt like I needed to go into church planting at some point. Just wanted to know that up front. And thank God this all came apart, a part of that. Well, after two years, the missions committee of First Baptist, is anybody here that was on that missions committee? Were the Fishers? Alan was on the missions committee, and Bernie, you were on it too? Okay. Okay, you think. <laughs> I know, it's hard. Okay, okay, good, good. Well, when Little York Road Church disbanded, which is this building, they petitioned, that the missions committee petitioned the Greater Dayton Association of Baptists uh, if they could start a new church in the same building. And so mission, uh, they agreed, and Don suggested to them that I was interested in church planting. 
1993, my family, along with several others, and some of you are here, uh, from First Baptist, began to make plans for starting a new church in this building. We met for Bible studies, made plans for the new church, did major repairs, and some of you were involved in those major repairs in this um, sanctuary and all over the building. We did a telephone outreach to all the homes, as far as we could tell, in the Vandalia-Butler area. Nobody had cell phones at that time, so we could pretty well tell who we were calling. And on April 4th, about 90 people were in attendance for that first service. Within a month, it decreased to about 45 and stayed pretty steady from there on out. Well, all that work that was done on the building and other things were really important. I mean, just so helpful, so helpful. But what is even more important are the people, the people who became a local church that, that set the stage really for the next 30 years. And along with all those who have been a part of this church over the years since then, which uh, includes a number of you here. And so what I want to do today is look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18 to 29. And there's some things here that God says that I think are very helpful for us to think about as far as the church is concerned. I mean, uh, these are truths that really we identify with more as a church than the address or the building in which we meet. The book of Hebrews was written to Hebrew Christians in the first century, and these Jewish believers were coming under a lot of persecution for their faith. And so a number of them were considering going back to their Jewish faith to avoid the persecution, which meant they would be turning their backs on Christ. So the writer of Hebrews is telling, is talking to them about the foolishness of going back to Judaism. Yes, it was a shadow of the coming of the Christ into the world to be Savior and Lord. And we're thankful for all the foreshadowing that is there in the Old Testament pointing to Christ. But it's foolish to give your emphasis to the shadow when you can have the real thing. So the writer of Hebrews is exalting Christ really from the very beginning of the book. And I want to read the first three verses of the book. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many ways and in many portions, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom I appointed heir of all things, from he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And just glorious, exalting words of the Savior from the very beginning of the book. And it's because of who Christ is and what he accomplished that we can begin with this main point. And there is an outline in your bulletin. If you have a bulletin, <coughs> we'll begin with this point. <coughs> the church is unshakable and will certainly endure because of all that our exalted mediator Jesus Christ accomplished for our salvation. The opening verses of Hebrews that I just read remind us that it was Jesus Christ who made purification for sins. He suffered the wrath of God on the cross that every sinner deserves so that our sins could be forgiven. Jesus Christ then, the God-man, is the only mediator between God and man. And these verses tell us that after Christ made purification for sins, that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Well, to sit down first means that the work was done. The work of salvation was completely accomplished. It was finished. But it also tells us that our Savior is also the King. 
This is one of the most important points that we have as a Christian worldview. Praise God, we have a Savior. And glory to God, we also have a king. A king who is ruling over all things, all the time. And the work of Christ as king is important part of what we see in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 and 19. And that's the reason we can know that the church of Christ is unshakable. In verses 18 to 24 from Hebrews 12, the writer gives a helpful contrast between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant in Christ. Verses 18 to 21 tell us about the Old Covenant. They tell us what it was like standing before the Lord as a sinful person with no saviors. Let me read those verses, 18 to 21 of Hebrews 12. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and to a blazing fire, and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet, and the sound of words, which which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. (coughs) For they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. This is talking about what happened at Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus. And this is just before God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses to be shared with the people of Israel. Well, the verses tell us three things about the fearful state that man is in before God. First, we're reminded that God is majestically revealed as the absolute sovereign and the final judge to whom everybody must give an account. Everybody. Second, it tells us that we see that all people are required by God to honor his law. And if we don't do this, there are grave consequences. And then third, every man stands in fear before a holy God, knowing they deserve to be eternally condemned by him. Well, then the writer of Hebrews tells us how superior the new covenant is in Christ. That's in verses 22 to 24. So let me read those. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. So these verses help us see the next point on your outline, which is this. As the prophet, priest, and king of his church, Christ provides gracious gospel blessings for every believer. Gracious gospel blessings for every believer. We've already seen Christ as king, spoken of in the very opening verses of Hebrews. In verse 24, we see him as the priest when it speaks of his blood being shed as the mediator of the new covenant. And then in verse 25, which we'll get to in a moment, we will see him as the prophet, the one who speaks the words. Uh, that, that need to be listened to. And we see all of these, we, we, we see these from the verses that there is an unshakable glory in the church, and it's because of who our mediator is, our prophet, priest, and king. The Lord himself has taken up residence within his church. We are actually, the church is actually described here as the city of the living God. We are the city of the living God. That idea, that image there speaks of permanence, it speaks of safety. It's also interesting to see the writer of Hebrews, as he's speaking about the church, he talks about myriads of angels. 
That's interesting. To bring in myriads of angels among these descriptions of the church in various ways. Myriads, by the way, speaks of a company of angels that really can't be numbered. One of the books I've been reading is Divine Providence by Stephen Charnock. And in speaking of God's providential work on behalf of his church, he says that God has given angels for the good of his church. By the way, the writer of Hebrews speaks about this back in chapter 1, but here he brings it in again. Here's what Charnock says. He described angels as God's faithful sentinels who mindfully tend to his treasure, the church. He said they tenderly and delightedly minister to God's people. Did you know that? We talk sometimes about having a guardian angel. <clears throat> That's too limited. The problem with that is that we don't have a single. There's an innumerable multitude, an innumerable multitude of angels who are tenderly and delightedly ministering to us. Why? Because we're God's treasure. His treasure? Yeah. We are God's treasure. Well, let me highlight two of the gospel blessings that are spoken of in these verses that I want to speak to for a bit. <coughs> First, the blessing of the local church. What the writer is speaking of is not just the church at large or the church in general. He's speaking really of the particular local churches that these believers were a part of. He's speaking of the particular local church that we're a part of as well. And in speaking of those who make up the church, he includes in his description, in his list, the spirits of the righteous made perfect. That refers to believers who have died and are with the Lord. This is sometimes described as the church triumphant. When thinking of our church, I want to remember a few people. Some of you remember Lisa Riley. Back early years, young lady with special needs, very committed to the Lord. She died in 1999. Dennis Burry, a lot of his family is here today, gave us so much help in those early years. He put all these windows in, upstairs and downstairs. He died in 2007. Bob and Linda Orr began coming to Two Rivers when Bob was in the final years of his life. Bob died in 2011. Nancy Fisher, her daughters are here, came in those early years with, with Chris and Kelly, very involved in decorating. Matter of fact, she's the one who painted that Noah's Ark that is still downstairs, by the way. <laughs> she died somewhat unexpectedly in 2012. More recently, remember Bob Johnson. He and Carol and Michelle came to Two Rivers beginning with that very first service, uh, have been here ever since. Bob served the church in so many practical ways. He passed away in 2018. And then in 2020, Dixie Crutchfield died. She was... Think of these people. She was really such a godly woman, just a servant, a wonderful Christian example. But all of these, all of these represent spirits of the righteous made perfect. They're part of the church triumphant. Those of us who remain on the earth are what are often described as the church militant, not because we're rebels, 
but because we are continuing to battle with sin, temptation, uh, pressures from the world, whatever. And we do so, however, as being part of the city of the living God. There's a couple things that I want to mention as important uh, in the organizing of Two Rivers as a local church. One of the issues was membership. Within that first year of 1993, I was trying to think through the issue of church membership. Traditionally, Baptist churches always have a membership role. I know that I've been on a Baptist role all my life. But I didn't want to do something just because it was tradition. Um, I mean, there's a place for tradition, but I just didn't want to do things just because it's traditional. I wanted to do something because it was right and because the Bible actually told us this is what to do. So I began to ask questions in 1993 of several Baptist minister friends that I had. Can you help me think through what the biblical principles are related to church membership? Nobody had a clue. They did not have a clue. Now, you can find all kinds of stuff on that right now, but I had no resources that I knew that were available to me at that point. But little by little, I came to understand some things that I felt like were very key as far as why there should be a membership role, which is one of the reasons I want us to read that, uh, why that should happen. And um, so now I understand that as being just vitally, vitally important. I mean, uh, every Christian is to be a part, an active part, a member, really, of a local church. There's really no such thing in the Bible, and a lot of you know this, there's no such thing in the Bible as somebody who is a Christian who's not an active part of a local church. It doesn't exist. And like I said, we remembered that this morning because I emphasize that a lot. Maybe I emphasize it too much. I don't know. But uh, just the way it is. <laughs> Another thing that was an important thing that we did those first two years was choose elders. I think we actually made that choice in 1994, if I remember right. Um, as we read in our church's statement of faith, uh, this is one of the key things that God requires, really, of churches to provide under-shepherds for the flock. In fact, in the early years, that's what we called them. We called them under-shepherds because it was descriptive of the position. But it was also called under-shepherds to avoid pushback from the association. Um, at that point in Baptist life, it was rare. It was rare, unfortunately, I will add, for churches to have elders. If you go back to Baptist history, they all had elders. There was a big gap in between. Now it's starting to come back. As best I can tell, we did have elders. As best I know, there was only one other Baptist church in Ohio that had elders besides us. So it was not well received. So we were under shepherds. <laughs> Um, those first elders were uh, Alan Gilbreth and he and Norma, as I think of them. I'm going to be crying all through this. <laughs> I still remember when they came up to me, they were the first ones who ever came up after it was official that uh, First Baptist was going to send us out to start. First ones who came up and said, we want to go with you. They've been there for 30 years. Alan was one of our first was one of our first elders. Scarberries came very soon after we started. Um, uh, he and his whole family, which is many of you guys are here also. Uh, uh, Mike was one of our 
elders and Wayne Carver. His family's also here, Vicki and, <coughs> and, and um, Katie. And so um, all of those men have just been so important, you know, in the life of this church. They're all retired from that role right now, but they still are active and uh, just don't know where we, our church would be without them. Being a part of a local church is a blessing for which I am very grateful. Now, nothing that's alluded to in these verses, next point is this, the blessing of corporate worship. In verse 22, the author says to these believers and their local churches, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of a living God. Well, that phrase, you have come, that speaks of their approach as worshipers. That's, what that's, that's the image there. So the privilege of the believers in the new covenant is to come together in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for worship. By God's grace, we know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and in Christ we have come to that city of the living God, and you can't do that without worship. Over the years, I've been so grateful for the many people who have helped in our worship. Uh, in the earliest years, and some of you probably remember this, I kind of wish I could forget it, but in the early years, we had no instrumentalist. We sang to tapes. <laughs> some of you probably remember that. We sang to tapes uh, through the sound system. At least we put it through the sound system. It wasn't just a tape recorder sitting up there. But, <laughs> but little by little, God provided people who could lead us with their voices, with their instruments, and, I mean, just such a blessing. This is one of the areas that I've really grown a lot over the years. I remember a youth founders conference that uh, several of us went to, and that's been over 20 years ago now, as best I can count. And they were leading us in that conference and singing songs that I had never heard before. But I thought, these are great. Where did they get these songs from? They were just, there was just such a depth to them. They were so gospel-focused. Well, that was my first introduction to Sovereign Grace music. And so I found a gold mine when I found those. We actually sang one or two of their songs this morning, and I put those in for that purpose, just to say that they have had a, that they have had a significant part in the songs that we have used in worship. I was also, it was also a number of years ago that I became convicted that we needed to be more deliberate in singing a mixture of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And I'm not doing that just to be cutesy or, you know, anything like that. I'm doing that because I really think that's what the Bible says we're supposed to do. I mean, God has ways he says we're supposed to worship him. He says that's what he likes, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. So that's probably what we should do. So over the recent years, we've been learning to sing more psalms. We're going to close the service with a psalm a little bit later. Singing together as the redeemed people of God who are part of the city of the living God really is one of my favorite things to do all week. So Lord has provide, provided many gracious blessings for us as being part of his unshakable church. Another thing that gives us encouragement in this, which is the next part on your outline, Believers can be encouraged that Jesus Christ has been given dominion over the nations of the earth. Dominion over the nations of the earth. Christ's dominion over the nations is spoken of in the very beginning of Hebrews. He's the one who's seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, as you remember. That's absolute authority. And it's referred to again in verses 25 to 29. So let me read those verses for you. It says, See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not re escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him and warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, 
yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, once again, we see Jesus Christ as the one who is speaking to which we're supposed to give attention. That's what's presented here. See to it that you not refuse him who is speaking. And we're going to deal more, more with that in a moment. But first, I want to make the point that the fact that the Lord, our Lord and Savior has dominion over all the nations of the world should give us some comfort. He's not only head of the church. He is the Lord of the nations. So, of course, therefore, his church will be unshakable. Even though it is not directly mentioned here, this also points us to the commission that he gave his church to make disciples of the nations. Matthew 28, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's, there's no gaps there. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of the nations. So the fact that Jesus Christ has been given dominion over all the nations of the earth is what gives us the authority to reach the nations with the gospel. Until that Youth Founders Conference we went to, I had never been on a mission trip outside of the United States. But there we made contact with David Sitton of Two Every Tribe Ministries. We began to regularly send mission teams to work with them as they sought to plant churches in Mexico. Many of us here went multiple times to Mexico with two every tribe missions. Then Bethany, my daughter, went on a mission trip with the association to Kinmen, Taiwan. She ended up moving there and lived there for 11 years, 12. And, um, and so um, we began sending mission trips there to uh, be a support and work through the ministry of Jing Chung Church with their outreach to the community through their English camps. Becky Byerly has been a major help as far as supporting missions. Um, she's gone on multiple mission trips herself. She's also been very active in disaster relief. Another thing that we've given priority to, and this, uh, this goes back, too, to that class I took at Southwestern Seminary, is trying to help start new churches in the states. We've actually contributed quite generously, especially for a smaller church, We've attributed quite generously to four church plants, John Pope and Refuge City Church in Dayton, Cal Puckett, Redeemer Community Church in Loveland, Bruce Seavers and Grace and Truth Church in Ireland, Indiana, and we are currently supporting Fred Clement and One Family Church in Dayton. The Church of Jesus Christ is unshakable, and it's expanding in the world, and it's all because of our exalted Savior and King. Now, the verses in 25 29 begin to speak more about that great shaking that the Lord is doing. So our second main point is this. As the exalted king, Christ is shaking all of his creation that is opposed to his rule. Back in verses 18 to 21, the writer of Hebrews referred to the fearful demonstration of the majesty of God on Mount Sinai. He spoke of a blazing fire and darkness and gloom, a whirlwind, the blast of a trumpet, it's described as a terrifying sight. 
in verse 26, we're reminded that the very voice of the Lord at, at Sinai actually shook the earth. In Exodus, we, we read that the earth quaked violently. It's interesting to note that in Hebrews, the voice of God that shook the earth at Mount Sinai is equated with the voice of the Messiah in the New Covenant. But what the voice of the Messiah shakes is different. And to help us understand what Christ the King shakes, there's a reference here made to the prophet Haggai. I'm going to read for you Haggai chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. It says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more in a little while I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also, and the dry land. I will shake all the nations, and they will come with me, wealth of all the nations, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Well, Haggai includes a phrase that the writer of Hebrew leaves out. Haggai says it's going to happen, this shaking is going to happen in a little while. And it was a shaking that was directed toward the nations. Well, this was meant to be an encouragement because at that time, at Haggai's day, the Israelites had returned to Jerusalem from exile in Babylon, and they were in the process of building the temple. So this was to be an encouragement to them as they were rebuilding the temple. They had opposition all around them, but they needed to press on in building with the knowledge that the Lord would take care of them as they did that. I think the direct fulfillment of this <coughs> for, this people, for the people of Israel had to do with God's promise to shake the empires of the world. It began with the Lord sending the Persian army to overthrow the Babylonian empire. In Haggai's day, the people of Israel were serving under the Persian empire. But in a little while, another shaking was going to come. The Persian Empire was going to be destroyed by the Greeks. And then another shaking. The empire of the Greeks was going to be overpowered by the Romans. But as Daniel then prophesied in Daniel 2.44, it would be in the days of that Roman Empire that the kingdom of Christ would be established. And it was this kingdom of Christ that Haggai was speaking of when he said the temple that the Israelites were working on would be filled with glory. It was the glory of the crucified, risen, and reigning Christ that he was referring to. Now, there's a key here to understanding history. As men build empires that have no interest whatsoever in the glory of the one true God, he will ultimately shake them down. The Babylonian Empire, Persian Empire, Greek Empire, Roman Empire were all based on the glory of arrogant, unbelieving men, and the Lord shook them down. And again, it was during the Roman Empire that the kingdom of Christ, which cannot be shaken, was established. Okay, so look again at verse 26 and 27. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he says, and he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This phrase, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken, as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. So our next point is this. Jesus Christ is so ruling that persons, structures, and philosophies of men that are opposed to him will be shaken and removed in his time. It's Jesus Christ, the king, who is doing the shaking. He's the one who not only has been given authority over the church, but over the nations of the world. So as Christians, as the church of Jesus Christ, we're part of the unshakable kingdom. 
That's because Jesus Christ is our prophet, he's our priest, he's our king. But every person, every structure, every institution, every nation, every philosophy of man that stands in opposition to the king will all be shaken and in God's timing will be removed. In the last few years, we've seen quite a bit of shaking going on. Though in some ways our time in history is unique, and in other ways it's symptomatic of what's been happening in history for hundreds and thousands of years. <clears throat> All that is in opposition to Christ the King is being shaken and will be removed. That removal does not happen quickly. We've got to remember that our God is patient. He gives room for repentance. When we think about the fall of Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, each of those empires continued for hundreds of years. God is patient, but in his time, he will remove, he will judge those who will not submit to his rule. In our day, the Lord is shaking individuals. He's calling each one of us to examine what or who we are trusting in. He's calling businesses, educational institutions, media outlets, medical institutions, entertainment venues, all are being shaken by Christ Jesus. The Lord is shaking politicians and civil magistrates and law enforcement agencies and political parties. What are they standing on? Are they governing according to biblical principles? Are they acting as ministers of God are supposed to because that's what they are according to Scripture? The Lord is shaking philosophies of men, which I could not even try to give you a list of all the ones that are prevalent in our day now. And also, every religious belief system that does not look to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that does not honor the Scriptures as the inspired Word of God, each of those belief systems are being shaken by Christ the King. And each of these entities will be removed in God's time if they will not repent. But there's hope here as well. That word for removed in verse 27 can also refer to something being changed or transformed. So in some cases, by God's grace, maybe in many cases, the shaking is going to result in conversion. It will result in individuals and groups turning from unbelief and rebellion to trust in and submission to Jesus Christ. So even in these times of great shaking, there is still much hope, which leads to our next point. The shaking of the Lord's enemies is a blessed promise of God that is welcomed by his people. So as a small local church, should we be encouraged by this? I say, yes, we should. If you notice in verse 26, this is written as a promise. It's not a threat. It's a promise. When our Lord shakes, it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's the Lord Jesus Christ making it clear that many people, many institutions, many philosophies of men are building on sand. And when the floods come and when the winds blow and slam against them, everything they believe in and hope in will ultimately collapse. Might look pretty for a while and impressive for a while, but ultimately will collapse. The Lord is calling people to hear his words and respond in repentance and faith. And when they do that, they're building on the strong, solid rock of Christ. And then when the rains come and the floods come and the strong winds, they're going to stand for them because built on the rock. 
I ran across this quote from Martin Selbridi that was helpful to me. He says, God brings unshakable things out from under shakable ruins. There are unshakable things that are always there, even though there's ruins all around. The unshakable things are related to the church. There's lots of shakable ruins in our nation and all over the world. Some of those ruins are never going to come back the way they were before. That's because some are being removed by the Lord. Others will, be, will, will rebuild on the unshakable ground of God's word, and that's good. So this shaking of the Lord is not something for believers to be fearful or anxious about. It is a blessed promise of God that we can hold on to in times that seem uncertain in many ways. When I think about this and try and remember 30 years ago, which is a challenge, I already know that, and some of you can attest to that as well. Um, when I think about 30 years ago and I think about where we are now, my impression is, is that where we are now and what we're going to face now is worse, is more difficult than what we had to face 30 years ago. It's getting harder. It's getting harder. The shaking's getting more intense. But the church is unshakable as long as we're on the, on the foundation of Christ. So that brings us to our final point. How should we as Christians live in times of great shaking? Number three, the church is called to live in a manner worthy of the unshakable kingdom of Christ of which we are a part. Verse 28 says, therefore, since we receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken, well, we need to see here that the kingdom of Christ needs to be received. To receive the kingdom is to receive the king, to receive Jesus Christ. We receive Christ. We receive him as our prophet, our priest, and our king as prophet. We receive him as the one who reveals truth to us in his word. So we receive the scriptures as the inspired word of God. As our priest, we receive Jesus as the one who offered himself as the sacrifice for sins, the only way of salvation, so we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior. And as king, we receive Jesus as the Lord and master of our lives. We give up living our life based on our own ideas and our own desires. Instead, we submit to Jesus Christ as our Lord and king. And when we receive Christ, we are brought into the kingdom of Christ. We are members of his body, the church. Therefore, in the midst of all the shaking, we have firm footing in Christ. <clears throat> so as a local church that has received Christ as our prophet, priest, and king, we have hope for the future because of Christ. He has promised to build his church even in the midst of all the shaking that's going on. <clears throat> I can't resist re reading a few more quotes from the book I'm reading on divine providence because he has a lot to say about God's providence concerning the church. Listen to some of these things. I think you'll be encouraged. <clears throat> He says, this is Stephen Sharnock, God's people, the church, are foremost on his mind. He loves them, and all his designs are for their good. The Lord has given his covenant people his whole heart, infinitely, entirely, and forever without hesitation, and he orders his gracious providence for their salvation and for their preservation. A couple other ones. All providence is for the good of the church. He says the world is sustained and continues 
for the sake of the church. God orders the course of natural things for the good of the church or its members. The interest of nations, all civil affairs, and the course of all things are ordered for the good of the church. One more. Everything sits under God's providence. Even evil is decreed to bring good to the church. When Satan and wicked persons conspire to destroy God's people, the Lord in his providence and power brings evil under the subjugation of his mercy and sovereignty and diverts their sinister plans to instead elevate and enrich his church. What human beings mean for destruction, God uses for his glory. Those might be encouraging. And it's true. I mean, there's all, and it fits exactly with these verses. And it's probably beyond what we normally think. Especially if you read the newspapers. We don't have newspapers. You watch any kind of TV news, whatever it is, they're not going to talk about that kind of stuff. And therefore, all you hear is the other stuff that makes you scared and upset. What's going to happen? What do we do now? Well, we, yes, God's made all these promises, but we have responsibilities as we move forward. Let me mention four that I think we can pull from this passage. First, as believers, we must guard against putting our hope in the shakable structures of men. There's a strong warning in this passage about rejecting the gospel of Christ and going back to the picture of God's terrifying majesty at Mount Sinai. We are reminded in verse 29, our God is a consuming fire. So even as the Ten Commandments were being given to Moses on the mountain, the people were building and worshiping a golden calf. Remember that story? And those idolaters were slaughtered. We dare not reject the gospel of Christ for some competing philosophy of men. There are so many philosophies and ideas about how things should be done. And if they're not consistent with the scriptures, then they are in the category of a shakable structure of men. And we have to stand firm for the truth, even when it's unpopular in the culture. The shakable culture. That leads us to the second thing that we must do to live in a manner worthy of Christ's unshakable kingdom. As believers, we are called to regularly hear and apply the sure and powerful word of Christ in our lives. If you look back at verse 25, it's speaking of the word of Christ, our great prophet. As we read earlier, the writer of Hebrews started this book with these words, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in the Son. So again, we praise God for all that he's spoken in the Old Testament. But in these last days, the days of the new covenant, the days when Christ is ruling his kingdom from the right hand of the Father, in these days, he has spoken to us in his Son. Jesus taught. The Gospels tell us that. Jesus called apostles to himself and promised that the Holy Spirit would bring to their mind all that Christ had spoken. And through these men, we have a written record of how God spoke to us in his Son. So we now have the New Testament as well as the Old and it's a clear and powerful word. We see in verse 25 that if the people who heard God speak at Mount Sinai could not escape when they refused that word, how much less will we escape if we refuse the word of Christ? So in these times of shaking, as in all times, as a church, we must remain faithful to the word of God. There's many challenges, many things that try to get us to compromise what it says, but we must not do that. 
We must continue to regularly hear and apply the sure and powerful word of Christ to our lives. Number three, as believers, we are called in the middle of all of this shaking to serve Christ by his grace. Serve Christ by his grace. Again, we see that in verse 28. It says, therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and all. To be in the kingdom of Christ means that we serve him as our king. How do we make sure that our service is acceptable? New American Standard says, let us show gratitude. So we're grateful for all that God has done in us in bringing us into his kingdom. And our gratitude indicates that we trust him to continue his work in us, just like he's done in the past. But the phrase literally there means, let us have grace. And it reminds us that we can only serve our Lord in an acceptable way as we depend on his grace to help us. And it's God in his grace who works in us in such a way that he inclines us toward his word. Well, these seasons of shaking highlight lots of areas of weakness. You've probably felt some in your own life, just like I have. They highlight lots of areas of weakness. But it's by his grace that we can be strong even when there's weakness. So in seasons of shaking, whether it's in our personal lives, in our church, in our culture, we must continue to serve Christ with a dependence on his grace. And finally this, as believers were called to live not in response to the fear of man, but with a holy reverence toward our God. And those final verses, 28 and 29, we're exhorted to approach our Lord with reverence and awe. We must never forget what a majestic God he is. He is constantly, we constantly remind ourselves that he's the eternal, unchangeable, all-powerful, everywhere present. That's who our God is. But you know, when we're in the midst of some serious shaking, it's easy to fear things that man is doing. People can physically hurt us. People can take things away from us. People can mock us. They can reject us. People can intimidate us. When we fear people, we make them bigger to us than God is. Proverbs 29, 25 says, Fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord will be kept safe. What a helpful promise that is. They tell us that the antidote to the fear of man is the fear of God. Our God is a consuming fire. There is no one like him. And because of our vile and depraved nature that we all have, in our natural state, we deserve condemnation. But our holy, righteous, and just God has delivered us from judgment in Christ. We belong to him. We are saved by his grace. We are objects of his eternal love. Just such glorious truths. That doesn't mean that we approach him now in flippant ways. We don't do that. We come to him confidently, but not flippantly. The way God manifested himself at Mount Sinai is who he really is. He is a consuming fire. But as we approach him in Christ, God's righteous indignation toward our sin is absorbed in Christ. And we are his treasure. So as believers, as members of our local churches, whether it's this one or wherever you belong, we're part of the unshakable kingdom of Christ. And our Lord has promised he will shake all those things that can be removed. It can be a scary time for sure, but we press on in faith. We press on in living lives that are worthy of our king. Lord, we want to thank you for your word. 
We thank you for challenging scriptures. We thank you for encouraging scriptures. I thank you for things that, as it describes the church, I think that some things things we can apply in our own circumstances to see that, well, we're the church. It applies to us. So, Lord, thank you for these encouraging and challenging words. Lord, I thank you for the ways that you have worked in this church and in the people here who have been such, who are just so precious, you know, to me as far as knowing them for so many years. And so many have influenced and helped in so many different ways. So thank you for all the things you've done uh, and seeing this church established and seeing people helped and encouraged and served in all kinds of different ways. Thank you for that. Lord, I want to thank you for the the church that exists and the things that that continue to be ahead of us. But Lord, I ask that you would grant us confidence that we are your treasure. And because of that, because of Christ, we are on an unshakable foundation. No matter what's happening around us, we are unshakable. Our Savior is shaking all kinds of things. We stand firm in Christ. Lord, help us to do that. Please help us to do that. If you're one who's never put your faith in Christ, I would invite you to consider that. A prayer like this would be a way to start. Lord, I realize I have not put my faith in Christ. I am not serving him. And I know there's sin in my life. I know I deserve judgment. So I come to Christ as my Savior. I know he paid the price for my sin. I want to receive him as my Savior. I want to commit my life to him as the Lord and King of my life. If you want to talk in more detail about that, you can make a note in your tear-off. Those who are watching online can reach out to us through the website. It is.